HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. In the continuing theme of young farmer domination over the whole terrestrial ecosystem, which is the part of the ecosystem that is the right part for agriculture, of course, avoiding all those parts which are critical for other activities such as nature, but probably taking over a lot more than we have now. I am joined today by Ty from Texas, Windy Hill Farm, Comanche, Texas. Hi, Ty. Hey, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? How are you doing over there? I'm doing good. It's a warm day in Texas, but uh, good nonetheless. Yeah, you guys have had a lot of hot weather and a lot of drought. And um, what are the experts telling you about that these days? Well, um, I mean, the long-term looks are definitely you know, relatively grim in the fact that it's a, a long-term drought that's definitely going to push from the west to the east. We did have a good amount of rain um, a couple weeks ago that really helped out, and definitely in the case of our ranch, will probably at least get us through a couple months without having to buy hay for our cattle and goats. So that's nice. At least we can concentrate on the short term and be have positive feelings. Let's talk about the price of hay while we're while we're at it. Um, tell me about yeah. the price of hay in Texas. It, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and um, contemporaneously. Yeah, sure. Um, I can I mean right now in Comanche, for a round bale of coastal, you're looking at a hundred to hundred and thirty bucks, which is if you took that same bale of hay and you know, bought it four years ago, it would probably be 50 bucks. So more than double the amount. Um, and that makes a big difference because consumers aren't necessarily paying twice as much for the meat they want to consume. Um, let's, let's back off from the doom and gloom for a second and talk about your beginnings 
Um, as it sounds like, you're really becoming a marketing maven over there. Um, can we just talk a little bit about the place that you're, you are and, and the business that you've built? Sure, um, absolutely. So um, I finished graduate school in 2008 and made the decision to move back to my mom and stepdad's land and turn that into a retail business. And that started from a real small scale, um, you know, building a garden and switching from selling our young goats at the auction to processing them and attempting to sell them direct to consumers. And um, I guess three years ago, we had a pretty, it was like a bad drought summer in Texas. So we um, processed about 50% of our stock. And, you know, I turned a bad situation into a good situation and really started marketing to chefs. And what happened is I soon found myself with not enough goat so I tried to think of the best solution, and I created essentially a Sudai co-op or partnership program with other ranchers where we find people who are raising animals similar to us and, you know, offer to buy them from them instead of taking them to the auction. And that was kind of the beginning of this huge goat movement that I've seen in the last three years. And it so that was kind of the start of Windy Hill Farm. I lucked out by picking an animal that does really well in Texas and then uh, marketing to people who were ready for something new and something sustainable for Texas. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at and went from butchering about 20 a month, I mean, not 20 months, excuse me, 20 a year to this year, we're looking at around 700 goats. So that's kind of our biggest animal. Um, everything else is a little smaller scale. So let's talk a little bit about the fact that you're, you know, let's just do a little bit of economic analysis. Um, how, how important was it to your business to be able to walk into parental land, number one? And then how important was it to your business to switch out of a commodity product? Well, having the parental land was definitely a huge deal because um, land in Texas isn't that cheap, one, because of a huge natural gas slash fracking boom. So even even land that you would think would be cheap, well, there's something underneath it that makes it more expensive. Um, and then add to that all the things you really need to have a ranching operation: the corrals, the truck, the truck, you know, the trailer that, and then a truck big enough to pull the trailer, a tractor to put out the hay. And luckily, we, you know, I was, I had that infrastructure already there for me. And that was a huge, I mean, huge thing for us. Um, and then what was the second question again? You mentioned that your parents were selling kind of commodity on a commodity market, just selling whole animals. And I know that in West Texas, or not West Texas, but Hill Country Land, there was a major Angora industry for a while, and that kind of fell down. Um, right. So, but, so that's, what... That's... what, what What's the impact of not selling on a commodity basis, I guess? Well, I mean, w one, to answer that question, is that my whole kind of ethos is Texas feeds Texas, and we have goats that have done good in Texas for a long time. You mentioned Angora goats. Angora was more done for the mohair, the hair of the goat, and then cheap Australian goat, Angora, basically killed that market. So people switched to meat goats 
Um, Texas raises 70% of the meat goats in the U.S. 90% of those goats are shipped out of the state. Most of that meat goes to the ethnic markets, meaning halal or Latino. Majority of Texas goat goes to the halal slash Muslim markets on the East Coast. So what I saw was a sustainable animal that wasn't being utilized in a state where it did really well. Um, and my parents did it mostly for a tax break and to, you know, because in Texas you get a land evaluation based on raising animals, which really reduces your property taxes and to try to, you know, break even and maybe have a little meat for the family. Um, and I just saw an opportunity to, you know, try to make the ranch more, more profitable than just breaking even because to be long-term goal, you needed to be more profitable to continue the growth and continue the push for goat being a protein of Texas for Texans. Well, uh, I just had another guy on the radio, um, also family land and also doing goats and also pigs. And um, we talked a lot about how, you know, the dynamic of family land and I wanted to just explore a little bit more. I, I'm seeing a lot of people moving back to land that was, you know, basically idle or underutilized or kind of recreationally farmland, um, and then moving that more being the economic foundation for the next generation. And I wonder if that's something you're seeing in Hill Country of Texas, people moving back to their families' land, not in the sense of, you know, resuming the operation that their parents were running, but starting a new operation on land that was essentially just a leisure uh, uh, leisure place. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm seeing that to some part. I think that it, it um, more so not as much as I would have thought. I, I mean, I, occasionally I hear from people who, you know, talking about, you know, going back to the land that, the, you know, the grandfathers had and taking the cattle herd and trying to do, you know, grass-fed operation. But, um not as many as you know. I'd like to see because I, I do know a lot of people have land that's either being underutilized, not utilized correctly, or just for a you know a commercial commodity market, which isn't really sustainable. Um, you know, I, I was the secretary of the board for the Texas Organic Farmer and Gardener Association for three years um, until January when my term was finally up, um, and you know that was definitely a big part of what I was pushing for was to try to connect young farmers to not even family land, but any land that was, you know, someone was out there trying to, wanting to utilize, maybe just yeah. didn't know. But I think there's a long way to go, but I think there is potential in that. Can you tell me, let's go a little level deeper, because you're, like, in my territory now, for sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm, like, obsessed with land access. I don't know if you know, but we just started an another organization, oh, my Lord, called Agrarian Trust, which is basically a land reform organization. And our mission is, is access for the next generation. So could you talk a little bit about what you or, whoa, the rain just started coming down big. Um, do you want to make sure none of your technology gets wet? Uh, pardon me. Some of the issues no that you were seeing come up in that project of bringing that land back into action. Well, um, I mean, I think the first thing is you have to develop some sort of database that can be 
easily accessed by a younger generation who's going to be used to, you know, cell phones and all this modern technology, a lot of things that we probably take for granted and don't even know we do, and then possibly an older generation that isn't at all going to know how to utilize that. So it's kind of combining those two things. The um, Texas Young Farmers Coalition is kind of on the beginning stages of developing something like you mentioned, some sort of database to connect those people. And I, I think it's something that will happen, but it's, you know, how do you do it? I don't think there's a right answer, and there'll probably be lots of trial and error and then figuring it out. But um, I, I, I think it's possible. It's just, you know, take, takes time and, you know, perseverance to make it happen. You feel like the culture, the appetite, the willingness, the desire is there, though, right? Because that's what I feel. I feel like people are wanting to make it happen. We just got to work out the details. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that there's definitely a willingness to make it happen. I think that I'm also a huge proponent of, you know, the cooperative movement, and I think that there's a lot of strength in the, all of us working together because some some people, in my case, are really good at marketing a product and getting it out there. Another person might just be a great farmer but doesn't want to drive in two hours to sell you know, 50 pounds of tomatoes or whatever it is, you know, and I think if you can connect the, all these things, however you do it, I think that it, it really can happen and can have a bigger change. Um, so that's, you know, I think on my end, I'm mostly focusing on bringing together small producers that together will make a bigger change. And, you know, I hope to continue to do that with um, particularly goat meat. Okay, I like this. The cooperative, we, again, um, have to promote, we have a Greenhorns Guidebook on Cooperative Farming. It's put together by Faith Gilbert, um, funded by the SARE program. And she did a marvelous job, and um, we're just moving copies really fast, um, putting together a guidebook on the various ways that farmers can cooperate in marketing and ownership of land, um, distribution, processing, um, buying supplies. Um, all sorts of ways. Tell me, what's been your experience in putting together your own cooperative? Where did you look for information? How did you, like, figure out how to structure it? Like, what was your mental process when you approached the design of the... Obviously, it started with crisis, which is the mother of invention. But then what happened? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I kind of I looked at larger, like, Organic Valley and kind of looked over their bylaws and um, thought about how I would structure that, not so because none of our animals we buy are like certified organic, so not quite as rigid, but still rigid enough um, that I would feel comfortable selling the product. Um, being competitive with the commodity market, which has been getting higher and higher, so you you know you take your animals to the auction now. It's not it's not the days that you're getting nothing. You know the prices are pretty high, so competing with that. Um, making the connections with individuals who are then going to be like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. We'd love to work with you. Or being like, well, why would I want to sell to you and not to the auction? Why is that any better? So convincing them that um, then, and I kind of just took it in strides, you know, trying to make connections with like, hey, if uh, Farmer Jane or John is going down to the feed mill, why don't we all buy in together and that that 
makes it cheaper and trying to make that in simple terms come together. Um, there's a hopefully a cool co-op organization called Moon Tower Cooperative in Austin that's just kind of in the beginning stages, but um, I think they will be a good addition to even any other co-op movement and the fact that they'll be based in Austin and they'll be buying bulk equipment and doing um, value-added products with products farmers can't sell. And so connecting with them will then mean that we can maybe get fencing with them. And so our co-op works with them to then buy that that fencing. Um, I We're not a legal co-op, so the, the legal structure isn't as rigid as, say, Moon Tower, which has a board and such. Um, essentially, we're more of a, you know, a partnership. Um, you know, I call or email or text the person and, or they text me and say, hey, Ty, I got two goats that are ready to go to the processor. Do you have someone who wants to take them? Or I have, Ty, I have so many goat ribs. Can any way you can help move them? Things like that. And that's, that's how we, we function is with a partnership. I'm open with them. They're open with me. Out. Let's play this out. Um, you know, you've got an economic vision going on here. You're, you're narrating for me what you see happening, you know, the sequence of, of actions that are representing a, a shift in the way that the money flows and that the products flow and that how people work together. Um, let's play this out a little longer. Tell me more about this Texas feeding Texas and what you think is, you're capable of um, in terms of transforming and rebuilding the infrastructure that it's going to take to, to, to pull that off? Well, um, in Texas, we're really lucky to have a pretty eclectic climate situation where in the panhandle, it's, you know, they're growing, you know, cotton and grapes and things that, could, that you know, need a cooler climate. And then you know, reverse that to South Texas where they can do citrus and avocados. West Texas, you can do, you know, goats and some of the hardier cattle breeds. And then East Texas, you can do some of the breeds that hand, need, you know, a more grass-based diet. And I think that we have more than enough land that's utilized in a sustainable manner to feed people healthy and not at a not at an overprice, but at a fair price to the farmer rancher that's doing things the right way. And that involves a huge shift in the way people are used to consuming, which is probably the biggest difficulty is convincing someone not that they can have a ribeye every night. Um, and then I think that it's okay to, you know, eat something from a different state because the state might do raise something better than us. But so there's a sort of trading thing, but I, I just feel like, we have, in my case, so much goat. Goat does really well in a changing climate. Different breeds do better in even more arid climates or in humid climates if you're in East Texas. And it's a healthy meat, so it's good for the um, people's health as far as red meat goes. And um, it, the goat's just one aspect of that, but I think that if you can start people thinking about that and eating that, then that's fits into them buying, you know, vegetables from, you know, whichever farm that's closest to them, if it's in Austin, Green Gate or Johnson's Backyard Garden, et cetera, all the cool farms that are near Austin. 
um, that all helps. The more you connect people to the local, the more they'll want to support that. And you see the appetite? you see the willingness? Do you see the capital starting to aggregate and, and congregate and show up for stuff and be ready and be on board and start to drive um, change in the increase in complexity and capital needs of these food systems? Um, are you seeing that willingness, or, or how do you feel like we can tease it out if it's not already happening fast enough? Um, I, there definitely is a willingness. I think there's a long way to go. I mean, you know, we sell at um, Hope Farmers Market in East Austin every Sunday, and you know, it, we've begun to do better with our proteins. Like we're pretty consistently busy, but usually when we have vegetables, we rarely sell out. And you know, if you went to the grocery store that same day, you know, pick pick whichever chain you want. It's going to be packed, and people are going to be buying, you know, blueberries from Chile or you know, salmon from Alaska with no thought. So obviously there's a long way to go. Um, and then you also have, you know, the other end of the spectrum where there's a um, an unfortunate elitism connected with local food, which, um, you know, I think people are trying to combat and I think will, and food deserts will hopefully be connected to lo- local food, which will then help that connection not seem so elitist. Um but I mean, I'm you know I'm positive in the movement because I've seen our farm grow behind people supporting a meat that wasn't seen as something that I mean to be honest that a white person would be eating or that you'd see any place, and it was such a foreign food to people. And in the last four years, I've you know seen our ranch and goat operation really grow, which makes me positive in other you know other products, and I've seen. Austin farms grow. So I know that we're moving in the right direction, but I also know that there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go. I just wanted to poke in a little bit deeper on this elitism thing and also on this, you know, young farmers don't know how to do this business. I feel like there's a certain amount of, like, victim blaming. Um, I was talking to... uh, to, uh, you know, some of these investor-type guys, and they were like, well, you know, young farmers, I mean, they don't, you know, how are they going to make any money? I mean, it's a really hard business, and they're so inexperienced, and, you know, the land is so expensive, and I was like, you are correct. The land is unreasonably expensive, and it's an unreasonably hard business to make money in, but is that the fault of those young people, or is that just the challenge that those young people have to overcome? And let's do our darndest to ensure that they do. And um, and I feel like the same kind of logic um, applies in terms of this elitist notion. It's like I feel like so many farmers freak out and are feeling guilt and panic and embarrassment and you know and imposing on themselves the unfairness and injustice of uh, their food being unaffordable. Uh, for people who are earning an unfair wage. And really, that's not the farmer's fault. The, f- the farmer is also earning an unfair wage. And um, I feel like until we're having a, a broader, more holistic, or more contextual economic analysis of what's really going down, a.k.a. agriculture is being distorted by subsidies to undervalue the, the production uh, and also subsidized by the 
uh, industrialization and, 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 and use of oil, which has a bunch of casualties associated with it, to undermine the price of food. Meanwhile, people are being paid less and less, and therefore they cannot even afford the food that is produced. And none of that is, none of that is, is the fault of um, or really of consequence to the producer who is dealing with the cost of energy going up, the cost of inputs going up, and, and you know, just producing food in a logical, sensible, sustainable way. So I think it's something the movement as a whole obviously is aware of, needs to be aware of, and has to talk about, frankly. But I, I just, I hate to see everybody throwing that job exclusively onto the farmer to answer to. Like, um, it should be all of our job to answer to that question. Anyway, you got a little rant out of me. Sorry. <laughs> oh no, no worries. I mean, I, I agree. I think that, that. I mean, I definitely agree with everything you said. I think it becomes for most people, you know, you start getting too deep into what really is going on. The harder it is to convince them to, to make change, which is unfortunate because I agree. I mean, I you definitely think that the 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 bigger commodity companies, you know, all the big names that we could think of that keep prices low and that are, you know, doing things in a non-sustainable way. But it's hard for, if you if you went to the random rancher in the hill country and started just telling them about that, most of them are going to probably walk away from you. So it's a way, how do you approach them, convince them to not go that commodity route? And then once they see that, maybe that better return or see that appreciation for their product, but then that all of a sudden gets them thinking into, well, this is the way I should have been doing it, and this makes sense now. And, I mean, there's different ways to do that, but I, there definitely is a big-picture conversation that is happening with, you know, like-minded people about it, but it's how do we influence the other people and convince them that, well, that grounds eight dollars a pound, not because that guy's trying to rip you off, because that's how much it takes to raise it that way. And here's why, and this is why you should only maybe need to be eating a little less, or you know, be try to you know grow your own vegetables a little bit to offset that. So, um. right, and then and God forbid that you would spend less of your discretionary income on cable television and and. Uh, hairspray, but in fact, the undervaluation of agriculture is a deliberate was deliberately constructed by our government in order to support hairspray and and uh, cable television as um, places where the economy can expand through consumer dollars that have been freed up from agriculture. So anyway, I agree that it gets people feeling hopeless, but I also think that. A greater level of economic literacy is a crucial and critical tool in our tool belt, in our communication tool belt, um, because I think people are running up against that same economic, the, the, the illegitimacy and, and, and illogical consequences of our macroeconomy in many parts of their lives, and it helps loosen up the conversation a little if we just um, are comfortable with it ourselves within the young farmer community. Anyway... It's been such a great pleasure having you on the show. I want to make sure to give you a chance to call out, other than the Texas Young Farmers Coalition and um, your Texas Organic folks, um, other places that people should tune into 
and if they're coming home to Texas from being out in the urban world learning a skill or a trade or getting a degree and a bunch of debt and they're thinking about coming home to Texas, where should they come and find your coffee? Um, well, I mean, I would say they should, the two organizations that, you know, I've worked with that I think are great people to connect with and that are doing changes at different levels is the Texas Organic Farmer Garden Association, which is TOFCA. Um, Texas Young Farmer Coalition is great for, you know, new farmers, um, not just young in age, but new farmers, meaning young. Um, um, they can, if they're trying to find out information about us, it's winnowfarmtx.com. Um, you can learn about some of the farms we work with. Um, we're always, you know, more than willing to help make connections for people for the embedderment of healthy food in Texas or even outside of Texas, if, if I can. Um, and, yeah. All right, we're wrapping it up, Sev. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.